And then we put our hands out just a bit. And we give you thanks, Lord, for all that you've done for us, for our health, our wealth, our families, for us being here for this church, this place, Lord. And we put our hands down and we receive from you all the gifting we need for today, the grace that you give us. And we thank you, Lord, for that. And we put our hands in front of us and we pray that, Lord, we can give, give it all away, that you give us generous hearts to give away our, your love, your kindness, to be able to show each other grace, to be generous with our money, and then we put our hands out. Lord, we sh say, please show us how to be generous in, our, in other ways, in our love for each other. How can we be mission-minded? How can we love like you love? Just break our hearts for the lost, the needy, the broken, Lord. Just bring them back to you. And we all say, Amen. Thanks. Good. Hi. Good morning, folks. Well, I've got another bucket full for you this morning. And I hope you all managed to get one of these cards. Has anyone not got one of these cards? Um, th there should be plenty around at the back and things. So uh, do make sure you get one of those cards. Just, uh, just uh, an aid memoir for you for these uh, five catalysts of growth. Um, as I say, they're not original to me, so uh, you can go online to Andy Stan and you'll probably find them. But uh, they're just a helpful reminder of the, And they're not exclusive either, you know. They're not the only ways that God sort of gets us to grow spiritually. But uh, they're probably the five main ways. And what I want to do this morning, I'm just going to do the first two, which is practical teaching and private disciplines as, uh, as the first two this morning. Uh, and then we'll do the others uh, later on this morning and this afternoon. Uh, and the first one is practical teaching. We need, you know, to grow in faith, we need someone, somewhere, to give us practical teaching. Uh, you may have heard the story about the, the very famous preacher, and he was a really, he was a splendid preacher, and uh, he was making the bed with his wife one morning, and he was happened to be around the wife's side of the bed, and as he was making the bed, he, his foot nudged up against something under the bed. And he looked under the bed and it was a box. He said to his wife, what's that? She said, it's nothing. He said, don't be stupid. There's a box under the bed. What is it? She said, it's nothing. It's nothing. And anyway, just before she went out to shop, she said to her husband, she said, uh, that box under the bed. Whatever you do, don't open it. So, you know, he's like a dutiful husband. He said, okay. She went out to go shopping. Of course, the first thing he did was go upstairs, go to the bedroom, get the box out, put it on the bed, open the lid, and inside were three eggs and a whole pile of 50-pound notes and a great roll. Put the lid back on, put the box under the bed. Wife came home from shopping. He said, darling, I've got a confession to make to you. She said, what? He said, I've looked in the box. Oh, she said. He said, well, come on, now that I've seen what's in the box, what, what's all that about? She said, well, okay, if you really must, okay. Every time you preach a bad sermon, 
I put an egg in the box. And he was really pleased. He said, well, great, there's only three. You know, we've been married 50 years, there's only three eggs in the box. He said, what about the money? What's the money? She said, well, when I collect a dozen, I sell them. <laughs> we, we desperately need good, practical teaching. Uh, we don't need Bible knowledge, although we need that as well, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's uh, when the Bible suddenly comes alive to us. When we suddenly say, oh my goodness, this is actually speaking to me. This isn't just a dead letter. This is speaking to me. And I remember that when, uh, when I became a Christian, uh, whenever it was, in 1975, I, I spent uh, years and years, I devoured um, David Pawson teaching tapes. Does anyone know who I mean by David Pawson? He's a Baptist minister from Guildford. And uh, I used to devour all his sermons. I, I would listen about four or five a week uh, in my study in Ardingly. And, uh, and I would devour them and, and fill my life full of teaching. And I've got notebooks at home full of uh, notes from all his sermons. And uh, it, it's great. I just absolutely devour it. And we need to do that. The good thing is that in this internet age, this is a great thing, is that you and I can now go online and we can access the best teachers throughout the whole world. It's unbelievable. Uh, and so, you know, you, you've got to find your own best teacher. I mean, personally, I do uh, listen to Andy Stanley from uh, North Point Ministries. You can make a note of that. North Point Ministries in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. I just love the way... I, it's more his delivery that I find fascinating, the way how he does it. I listen to Tim Keller a lot. It's a bit of a joke in our church because everything I do at the moment is Tim Keller. Uh, and all the books I read are Tim Keller. You can make a note of that too, uh, and uh, and and that you know. But there, are, you know, goodness me, there are thousands of good preachers out there, and you can just listen to them online. It's great. The bad news is, <laughs> have pity on your vicar, all right, and have pity. You know, I say to the congregation, guys, look online, see, but do have pity on me, all right. Because we don't come off too well in comparison to these great preachers around the world. And, but, the, the, the good, but the great thing is that these preachers around the world are not accountable to you. And I say to the congregation, listen, I may not be very good, but I do love you. And I care for you. And I'm going to be there for you. And I'm going to watch over you. And when you're in trouble, you can come to me and that sort of thing. And I think that makes the big difference, isn't it? So have pity on the preacher <laughs> in this internet age. But, you know, they're safe, okay? They're safe because they love you and they're accountable to you. Practical teaching. The second one, of course, is personal, sorry, private disciplines. Uh, you know that verse, it's in Luke 6, I think it's verse 45, 43, 45, where it says the good man does good things out of the good that's been stored up in him. The good man does good things out of the good that's stored up in him. And, of course, the, part, the whole point about personal disciplines, private disciplines, is that we're storing up good, a bit like, you know, these things that are on roofs these days with, uh, with electricity. We're trying to store up as much good as we can into our lives. And the way you do that, of course, are through the, the private disciplines. I'm sure you don't really want me to tell you what those are, but it's things like praying, it's things like reading our Bibles, 
It means things like worshiping together. It means fellowship together. It means reading Christian books, might, listening to CDs. It might be sharing faith, acts of random kindness, giving, silence, solitude, fasting. You know, all these various disciplines are all different ways that we can store up good in our beings. And then from that, we can give it away and give good to others. And, and, you know, I think the best thing I ever heard was what John Ortberg put in one of his books. I can't remember which one it was. And uh, one of the things he says that the key to, to private disciplines is simply this. It's practice, not trying harder. Uh, because, you know, there's a golf course out there. In fact, certainly as, as we arrived, Susie said to me, we would never be able to bring our church here because they'd all spend their time playing golf. They wouldn't come to the meetings. Anyway, so, uh, you know, there's a golf course out there. And if you ask me to go out and play like uh, Tiger Woods or what's, what's the guy who won the... Mac was it? Was it McElroy? Yeah. If you ask me to play like that, you know, my, I would be sort of hitting them all over the place. And if you said to me, well, Jonathan, try harder, you know, it wouldn't do any good. I'd still be hitting them all over the place. Well, try harder, but I can't. You know, I'm going to hit them all over the place. But if you said to me, Jonathan, what I want you to do is I want you to hit a 1,000 golf balls before breakfast for the next year. doesn't matter where they go. Just hit a 1,000 golf balls before breakfast. And in a year's time, you came back. Well, I think it'd be a difference, wouldn't it? What's the difference? It's not because I'm trying harder. It's just practice. Just practice. I think that's the key to all of it. Do you want to know how to pray more? Just practice. <laughs> Don't try harder. Oh, I must pray. <laughs> Just practice. If you want to read your Bible, practice. Fellowship, practice. Giving your money to the church, a lot of practice. <laughs> you didn't pay me to say that, all right? <laughs> Just a lot of practice. <laughs> you know, just practice. Okay, those are the two things. Now, I want to illustrate that um, from a couple of passages in Scripture. Um, but the thing that I want to say is, is that, um, and I've come to realize this over the, over the period of time, that the most, um, and it's something which escaped me for years, but do you know, the most important thing in our Christian lives is to grasp the gospel. Because that's where it all began, wasn't it? The most important thing is to grasp the gospel. The simple gospel that God loves you and he loves me, that he died for you and he died for me, and you believe it and I believe it. Uh, it's not because we're good, it's not because we deserve it, but simply because he gave his life for us. And he's now set us free. He's given us freedom. He's given us life. He's given us forgiveness. And that just that simple gospel is so key to everything. And, and actually, um, you know, sometimes I think that, that in our times, when you're sitting at table or when you're having coffee, we need to ask each other sometimes, tell me, how did you come to know Christ? Tell me about how you came to faith. What was it all about? Uh, let me tell you just a story before I go on. That um, we, we've got a guy in our congregation, well, we've got a girl in our congregation, a woman in her 70s, I guess, Sandra. Uh, she's a dear, she's an absolute dear, but her husband has been resolutely anti-Christian all his life. I mean, believe me, anti-Christian. You know, he really, he's a nice guy. It's not that he doesn't like Christians, actually. He, he rather likes us. 
So he's not horrid or anything like that. He just doesn't believe it. He just thinks it's a load of rubbish. And he's resolute about it, absolutely resolute. Uh, this, this chap, he's sort of in his 70s. And uh, throughout his life, he, he's been so against it. And, and of course, more recently, he's, he's been suffering all manner of conditions. I can't, I, the number of times that Susie and I have been to visit him in hospital, I, I can't tell you how many times. He's had heart bypasses. He's had uh, transplants. He's had, uh, he's had bowel cancer. He's had cancer in the lung. He's, you know, it just, just, it just goes on and on and on. And, and every time we go to visit him, he sort of shoes us away. He says, no, I don't want to know. Don't want to know. Don't want to know. Anyway, it was last... What was it? Easter? It was a bit around there. Well, he really was in hospital, and the doctors were saying, this is it. I mean, he had perforated this, perforated that. His, everything was exploding within him. He had peritonitis, he had um, heart condition. Other than that, he was quite healthy. But, I mean, he just had everything under the sun. You know, it was unbelievable. And whilst he was lying in his hospital bed, and he knew that he was dying, uh, he sort of floated in and out of a, of a kind of uh, dream vision. And in the vision, he saw these huge boulders coming towards him that were going to crush him. And then he looked the other way, and there were some, just some lovely people, and they, they were just standing there. They weren't saying anything. They were just holding out their hands as if to say, come. And he thought, oh, my goodness. I'm going to die unless I go with them. And so he started to walk towards them. And it was at a time when, when uh, he, he said that he, he couldn't breathe. His breathing was going and he just couldn't breathe. And as he was walking towards them, he was getting near them, he said this black nurse came and lay on his bed and sort of cuddled him and made him warm and started breathing into his, and just helped him to breathe. He said, come on, breathe deeply. <sighs> breathe deeply. And uh, after a bit, he could breathe deeply. And uh, he woke up. There was no nurse. In fact, there was no black nurse on that ward at all. And he just, he just knew that he needed to come to Christ. And... Uh, you know, and, and dear man, you know, he, he, he tells, told me the story and uh, he would just say, well, I'm, he says, I was an atheist once. He says, I was an atheist once. I really believed it. But I'm, an, I'm a Christian now. <laughs> you know, I'm following Christ. And no turning back, you know. And, you know. and he'd tell it and tears would be rolling down his face. And he's a transformed man. He's as sick as anything still, isn't he? He really is. He's so sick. But he comes to church and he wobbles in and sits there and beaming on his face. He's just a transformed man. And I love that. It's the gospel. He'd been told so many times that Jesus loves him. He's told so many times that he needs to come to faith. He's been told so many times. And it took a lot of illness and a big vision and a black nurse, whoever that was. He says it was Jesus, actually. That's what he says. He says, Jonathan, it was Jesus. Just came. And, uh, and that's the gospel. You may not have heard of a sermon, 
but he knew Jesus, and he's following Jesus now. And the thing about the gospel is that it's in the gospel that we get our identity, isn't it? It's the fact that because Jesus loves me, I'm secure, and I'm wanted, and I'm accepted, and I'm forgiven. And the minute I take my eyes off that, I'll try and get my identity in something else. And that will always let me down, because I'll either act in pride because I'm better than someone, or else I'll act in, in, uh, in, in uh, inferiority and be completely devastated because I'll feel useless. But actually the gospel makes us feel a million dollars because God loves us, but he, it also humbles us at the same time because we know we don't deserve it. Nothing else will give you confidence and humility at the same time. <laughs> but the gospel does. And that's where our identity is. Uh, Susie, just come and, come and say a little bit about identity. I always think it's funny when he asks me what my identity is because I think being a vicar's wife um, is, causes all sorts of uh, discussion about what your identity is and who we are and um, the, all the expectations and immediately who, when people meet me and they ask me, what do I do? And I say, well, I work for the church, um, unpaid, and I'm married to the vicar. That or as you can imagine, where is my identity in that? Um, and I have, over the years, we've been married for 11 years, and I think my identity has um, taken quite a few knocks. I've had to really try and work out who I am in Christ. And I can, and it, I think it's probably a daily walk. I would love to say that every day I wake up and go, yes, I'm, my identity is in Christ. And yep, when I do that surrender prayer, I feel like it is. It so is in Christ. But then something else happens. Someone will say to me at a party or something, what do you do? And, um, and it's around lots of other people who are working really hard um, in paid jobs and have lots of identity in being something a doctor or a nurse or something. And, um, and I, I suddenly think, oh my gosh, where is my, what do I do? So I think it's a constant reminder for me that I have to um, keep my eyes on God and um, know that my self-worth is in, in him and not in what I do. And having been a nurse, a mum, a widow, a single mum for 10 years, I think there's been lots of times along the way when I have felt that my worth was very low at times. And so the lovely thing now about being with very solidly strong in the fact that my faith and my identity is in Jesus is that I know that I'm totally loved by him. I know I'm totally um, made in his image, that he loves me, he's there with me and creates everything worthy for me. Yeah. See, the, 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 the minute we take our eyes off the gospel, uh, we'll either be proud, because <laughs> we'll think we're better, or we'll suddenly be demolished, because we think we're worse. And that's not good for a fellowship, is it? <laughs> of course, the other thing is that as soon as we take our eyes off the gospel, what happens is, is that people start sort of moving into little groups, because as soon as you take your eyes off the gospel, you start to look for people like us or like me, people that I'm going to get on with. 
And so you then get, in, 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 particularly in churches, you get little groups forming. Whereas, of course, the gospel is that, that we're all equal in God's sight. There are no little groups. <laughs> we're, we are one group. We're one body. The minute we, do, we take our eyes off the gospel, we get into little groups. And then there's factions and friction and jealousies and all that sort of stuff starts arising. It's because people get their eyes off the gospel. And, of course, the other thing that happens, as soon as you get your eyes off the gospel, guess what happens? People stop evangelizing. Or they'll only evangelize people like us. They only want people like us in the church. Uh, I, I remember that when we first came to, went to church down, it was a very sort of monochrome, ordinary church. And Susie and I said to each other, there aren't any oddballs in this congregation. So we started praying for oddballs. We said, God, send us the oddballs. And boy, they came. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy, they came. <laughs> and they still keep coming through the door. And I love that. Because actually, if we're not full of oddballs, then something's wrong. It's just people like us. But the gospel, get people of all kinds, all nature, all races, all, you know, it won't it? It'll be a completely mixed potpourri of people. So, you know, again and again, it's we've got to keep our eyes. It doesn't mean to say we don't do other things as well, but keep our eyes on the gospel. Because I think a lot of, a lot of Christians, they, they become Christians, they, they understand the gospel, and then they move on to something else. No, you can't move on. You can't move on to anywhere. You have to stay rooted at the cross. The cross before me, not looking back. Right, none of that's in my notes. So let's get back to the notes. <laughs> I said it was a full bucket this morning. Are you all right? Did you, have you got Bibles by any chance? Yeah, oh, great, well done. Uh, Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. Martha and Mary. We're going to do two sisters, then two brothers. Okay, two sisters, two brothers. Makes it slightly easier to remember. Two sisters, two brothers. Uh, Jesus was still on his way to Jerusalem. Destination heaven. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that he had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Martha, Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, here's a, an important lesson about one of the great dangers. Uh, of course, uh, the point is this, that as soon as we take our eyes off the gospel, what we revert to is religion. We'll still be nice people, middle class people, but we'll revert to religion. And religion is trying to do everything by ourselves, making ourselves acceptable to God. The gospel is that we already know that we are accepted. And uh, here you have this story of Martha and Mary. And I don't know what you've ever come across, what this story is all about. Of course, I've heard countless sermons about the, the difference between the contemplative and the activist. 
You know, that you've got the contemplative Mary, introvert Mary, sitting at the Lord's feet, hanging on every word that he says, contemplating. And then you've got the activist Martha in the kitchen, the extrovert Martha doing all the stuff. Well, is that what it's about? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, because actually we, we all have to be contemplative at times and we all have to be activists at times. So it's not trying to divide the introverts from the extroverts. It's not about the danger of being busy either because we all are busy. Who's not busy in here? <laughs> you know, we're all busy. Uh, nor is it, I, I remember once I, I did a sermon on this and I said it's all about prayer. Uh, do you know the story about Archbishop Ramsey, Michael Ramsey? He goes back what, to the 1960s, I think. And somebody asked the Archbishop, Archbishop, how, how long do you pray for every day? And like a shot, he said, oh, about a minute. And everybody was a little bit shocked, you know. The Archbishop of Canterbury only prays for a minute a day. But then he said, and then he left a little pause, and then he said, but I always spend an hour in silence before I pray that one minute in prayer. Oh, that changes things. So I thought, well, is that what this is about? Because, of course, in chapter 11 of Luke, you're into prayer. Jesus is teaching on prayer. So is Jesus saying, well, now you must spend a bit, you know, a bit in silence and contemplation before you get into prayer? Well, I made a good sermon, but I don't think that's what it's about. <laughs> now, the point is, isn't it, is that what is striking about the story is not that Mary was sitting whilst Martha was working. It's the fact that Mary was actually sitting with Jesus at his feet. That's the shocking thing. Because only men ever did that. Only men would sit at the feet of a rabbi. Women would never dream or even dare to sit at the feet of a rabbi. And if you sat at the feet of a rabbi, what that means is you're saying to them, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. And women would never do that. They just wouldn't. They'd always be elsewhere. It would only be ever men that sat at the feet of a rabbi. And here's Mary, and she must have taken a step of faith to go and do that. And she took that step of faith because she knew that Jesus loved her. She knew that Jesus accepted her. She knew that Jesus was the one. She wanted to be in Jesus' presence. And she said, and, and almost by faith, because it would have taken a lot of faith for her to do it, to actually step out and go and sit at his feet. And what, she, what Mary is modelling for us is not contemplation. She's just modelling what it means to be a follower. By faith, to accept the Lord's love and his compassion and his acceptance. But Martha was furious. <laughs> because Martha is the exact opposite. She's trying to gain Jesus' acceptance by working. It's religion, isn't it? It's, it's doing these disciplines of prayer and Bible study and things to try and gain God's approval. I need to gain God's approval by doing all sorts of things, whereas in fact we already have his approval because of the gospel. And so Martha is absolutely furious. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. You know, God, I'm doing all this for you. <laughs> I'm going, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm on the coffee rotor for you, God. 
And no one notices. No one ever says thank you. God, I'm doing this for you. I'm putting out the chairs every Sunday. God, I'm doing this for you. I'm, going, I'm baking cakes, for goodness sake, for you. Don't you care that nobody is noticing what I'm doing for you? you know? And it's in us, isn't it? It's in us. It's, it's only a fraction away from our lives. Lord, don't you care? Tell her to come and help me. You know, we try and control God, don't we? Whenever there's a gap in one of our rotors, you know, the, the, the big gap in our rotor is always the guy on the data projection. Uh, not many people want to do that job. Do you know why? Because it freezes every now and again, doesn't it? Don't you hate it when it freezes? Because everyone that starts looking at you said, and everyone's thinking, what's wrong with that data projection, man? Why can't he put the words up properly, you know? <laughs> We've gone on in this song beyond this line, you know? The poor guy's going there, the thing's frozen, you know? What am I going to do? And he has to turn the whole thing off. Then he has to reboot it. And he has to turn it all on again, go through all the procedures. And then it starts to update, you know, whilst he's doing that. So he has to wait 15 minutes. You know, it's a nightmare. No one wants to be the data projection guy. So we only have three people, I think, in our congregation that want to do it. And I keep saying to the Lord, tell them to go and join up for the data projection. Why don't you tell them, you know? You know because that's, that's, that's the Martha it is. You see, if we don't grasp the gospel, that's what we lapse into. We lapse into that kind of angry, self-righteous, religious, I want God to notice me kind of activity. Uh, do you know, I've always been puzzled by this, that um, in the book of Romans, right at the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul is writing this letter to a Christian church in Rome, and he says this in chapter 1, I'm so eager to come and preach the gospel to you. I think, why on earth does Paul want to preach the gospel to Christians? I can understand why he wants to preach the gospel to unbelievers or people who aren't Christians. I understand that. But why does he want to come and preach the gospel to Christians? Don't they know the gospel? Of course they do. Have they forgotten what the gospel is? Of course they haven't. What's the problem? The problem is they're not living it, isn't it? They're not living it. They know what the gospel is, but they're not living it. They're not uh, living their lives by it. And so in Rome, you've got all these factions all over the place. It's the same in Corinth. So what does Paul do? He spends the first 11 chapters of Romans telling them again what the gospel is. And then when he gets to chapter 12, he says, Now, therefore, in view of God's mercies, this is how you ought to live. But for goodness sake, make sure you know chapters 1 to 11. And you need to be able to be living it. And, and actually, that's what we're doing in communion every time. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And, you know, in the, uh, you've got to be careful about this. Uh, when we're talking about remembrance or forgetting, we're not talking about lapses of memory. When, when, when it says in the Old Testament that God doesn't remember our sins anymore, it doesn't mean to say that God literally can't remember what they are. It's not that God says, oh, no, I don't. what did you do? Oh, oh, I can't remember. You know, it's not that he's got a lapse of memory. He's not sort of, you know, sort of getting aged or anything. It's just that he, not remembering means he chooses not to act upon it. 
and forgetting. You know, when the Israelites forgot the Lord, it's not that they woke up one morning and thought, oh, what was his name? Oh, goodness, I can't remember his name. No, it's not that they had a lot. It's just that they're not living according to what they knew. So when Jesus says, you know, when he says in this communion, do this in remembrance of me, it's not because we can't remember his name or we can't remember what he did on the cross. We could, of course we dare. Of course we remember. What he's saying is, I want you to live according to the gospel. I want you to live your lives according to the cross. So when you do this, do this in remembrance. Just live your lives according to the gospel. Okay, those are two sisters. Let's have a couple of brothers. So we need to go to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. point is, isn't it? The point of the gospel is that I no longer have to try and get God's approval. I don't don't have to try and earn his love. I no longer have to try and earn his acceptance or win his favor. The gospel truth is, and it's got nothing to do with me, because of Jesus died for me, I have his approval. I have his favor. I have his love. I have his compassion. And therefore, everything we do is just simply a response. It's simply, God, I love you. I just want to serve you. God, I love you. I just want to obey you. God, I love you. I just want to do this stuff. But I'm not doing it in order to win your, your favor or anyone else's for that matter. It's powerful stuff. Just, uh, just have on, on to have a look at Cain and Abel because, again, you've got this dreadful story of these two brothers. Uh, Cain first and then Abel and then the the um let's just pick up the story again from verse uh two now Abel kept flocks Cain worked the soil in the course of time Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord and Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering but on Cain and his offering he didn't look with favor so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast and the Lord said to Cain why are you angry why is your face downcast If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? That's the clue, really, in verse 7. It's about being accepted by God. Now, you've got to realize that here you are in chapter 4 of Genesis, is that once upon a time, um, you know, we had perfect communion with God, perfect love, perfect acceptance. And then it all went pear-shaped or apple-shaped, whatever the fruit was, in chapter 3. And, uh, and it all went wrong. So now they're out of the garden. They're out of, if you like, they're out there in the cold. And the big question in chapter 4 is, okay, now that we're out of the garden, how can we be accepted by God? How can God accept us now that we're rebels? <laughs> how can God accept us now that we're out of the Garden of Eden? That's the big question. And Cain and Abel are exactly uh, two ways. One is the good way to be accepted by God, and the other one is the bad way to be accepted. Uh, Two different offerings. 
One was cereals, the other one was meat. One was accepted, the other one wasn't. And at first glance, you think, well, this is a bit unfair, isn't it? Why did God accept Abel's and he didn't accept Cain's? And, uh, you know, the, the immediate answer could be that God prefers shepherds to gardeners. That could be the immediate thing. I mean, after all, David was a shepherd and Jesus was the good shepherd. The only trouble is, Jesus said that my father is the gardener. <laughs> and, of course, Adam was a gardener, so that doesn't quite work. Is it that God requires a blood sacrifice? Maybe Abel knew that, that a blood sacrifice was needed. In fact, if you go back to... Uh, the previous chapter, verse 21, when the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife Eve, he must have killed something in order to protect them. So there's blood sacrifice way back in chapter 3. Did Abel know that? Well, he might have known that, but uh, grain sacrifices were just as acceptable in the book of Deuteronomy. What about the quality of the offering? Abel offered fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. In other words, he gave the very best that he had. Whereas Cain, did he just give what was to hand? Did he just give what he just had, just a few uh, cereals? Did he just give uh, an offering of uh, just some of the fruits of the soil? Was it half-hearted? Well, it might be. I mean, there's a lot of that in us. You know, we, uh, we just um, put a few coins in the plate. We sing rather half-heartedly. We go to sleep during the sermon. We turn up to a few uh, Bible study meetings, but frankly, we only turn up if it's convenient, all that sort of stuff. You know, there is this kind of, you know, for all of us, there's a kind of half-heartedness that creeps in, but I don't think that's the point either. I don't think there's any hint that Cain's offering was any less costly to him. Was it to show that life is just unfair? You know, that, uh, that God chooses one, but he doesn't choose another. And as we look around uh, this world, we look around, you know, we say, well, why, why does God choose this person or not that person? Why did God choose Jacob, not Esau? Why did God choose David, not his brothers? Why Isaac, not Ishmael? And of course, the answer is grace. God doesn't have to choose anybody if he doesn't want to. And if he does choose us, it's not because we're good, it's just simply of his favour. That may be getting a little bit closer, I don't know. Or maybe Cain and Abel just had to take a risk. They just had to, because they were completely in the dark, they had no idea what kind of offering to bring. No one had ever told them what offering to bring. And so they must have thought, well, we haven't done, I've got an idea. Just going to have to take a risk. See what happens. In the hope that actually it's okay. And if it's not okay, perhaps God will tell us. And I think that's right. God is saying, well, listen, I, you know, just, just take a risk. I'm not, I don't mind. You see, God didn't, didn't criticize Cain for his offering. It was just his reactions. He said, why are you angry? You got it wrong. Get over it. It's okay. Get it right next time. But Cain was so angry. Now, I think that the, the issue is actually much more Funny enough, the issue comes much more in what their names mean. It's unbelievable, this. I didn't realize this. Cain means get, achieve, work. Whereas Abel means worthless, nothing, empty. Fancy calling your son worthless, nothing, empty. Fancy being told all your life that your name means worthless, nothing, empty. Oh, morning, empty. How are you? Oh, how's, how's achieve? And work this morning. Oh, you're doing very well. 
And actually, it's when we look to the New Testament that we get the real light on the story. In Hebrews, it says this, by faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain. By faith, he was commended as righteous. By faith, Abel still speaks. In other words, the difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering has got nothing to do with the offering. It's what was in their heart. Abel came by faith. Cain didn't. Cain came by religion. Uh, Abel came by faith. He wasn't trusting in himself. He was just bringing. He knew that nothing in my hand I bring. I'm just going to bring it by faith. Because I know that you love me, God. Whereas Cain was trying to get his approval. Cain was saying, well, God, you must accept me because of what I'm doing. You must accept me because of what I'm bringing. You must accept me because of this offering. And, and the truth of the matter is that, that actually that Cain was furious with Abel, absolutely furious. And actually somehow that there's something in here, there's a pattern here, in the same way that Martha was furious with Mary, in the same way that the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son was furious with the younger brother, wasn't he? And there's a pattern here that actually people of religion, people of that kind of religiosity, hate people of faith. It's an extraordinary thing. Paul says it in Galatians chapter 5. He says, he says that the son born to the spirit of the, to the son, the son of the flesh persecutes the son born of the spirit. And he says it's still so today that actually religious people hate people of faith who know that they're accepted. And you, you get sort of slightly inklings of that sometimes in church life. You get people who actually don't really know the Lord and they're always carping on, they're always criticizing, they're always getting at those people that do know the Lord <laughs> and have faith. It's a dreadful thing, you see, when we move away from the gospel, when, and we only got to take our eyes off the gospel for one moment, and we lapse into this kind of religiosity. And it's one of the great dangers in our Christian lives, is trying to earn God's approval, trying to earn his, his acceptance. And the, right from the very beginning of the Bible, here we are, Genesis chapter 4, God says right at the beginning of the Bible, that is not the way to come. You come by faith. If you come by faith, you're accepted. If you believe in the gospel, you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling, as the, uh, the hymn goes, that's by faith. Now that we've got nothing, all we can do is come to him and ask for his grace and his favor and his forgiveness. It's coming by faith. And the great key, of course, is um, you remember that... Uh, in, in the baptism, when, when Jesus was baptized, the voice came from heaven and said, this is my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. And we need to hear that for ourselves every day, every single day, every single day. You are my son, you are my daughter. I love you, and with you I am well pleased. And we, we usually sort of, we, we do quite well on the first two, not on the third one. Sorry, don't, don't know your name. What's your name? Gareth. You see, sorry? Darren, sorry. Uh, you see, God says to Darren, Darren, you're my son, and I love you. 
And then he says, Darren, with you, I am well pleased. And immediately, if you're anything like me, Darren, you think, oh, goodness, why? Why is he pleased with me? I can think of a thousand reasons why he shouldn't be pleased with me. I know a thousand things about myself that I'm not pleased about, let alone God. But actually, you see, it's all been dealt with, hasn't it? It's all dealt with at the cross. And the Lord Jesus says, do you know what? I'm so pleased with you. Yes, God, but, but what about, what about, what about? No, 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 no. Jesus has dealt with that. He sorted it. Now with you, I'm well pleased. Not to make us boastful. It humbles us deeply, doesn't it? Because <laughs> we know what we're like. And for God to say to us, I'm so pleased with you, it just humbles us, but it also makes us walk tall. There's nothing else in this world that can give us confidence and humility at the same time. Except the gospel. We need to hold on to that. I'm feeling that we're moving into a time of coffee. I have that kind of, you know, it's a prophetic gift that I have. <laughs> yes, I feel... A coffee, yes. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> so I think we need coffee, but before we do, let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray. Now listen, um, just close your eyes, because the Lord is saying to you, you, yes, you, you are my son, and you are my daughter. I love you. And right now, with you, I am well pleased. It's the gospel. When we believe that by faith. Not because we are good but because he is good. You are good, good. Whoa. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. Wow. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amen. <laughs>